There are those in our world who believe that Christ is just uh, another created being, that he attained to deity. They are in our community. That is a falsehood. And we as believers need to understand the superiority of Christ in all ways. Taking your Bibles and turning to Romans chapter 13, we recognize that we have been through a lot in the book of Romans, and we are going to add some to it this morning. Many of those who suffer serious illnesses like cancer are given a time frame for the rest of their life. They are given a series of treatment options, and they are specifically oftentimes given an estimate of how long the doctor believes that they have to live. As the patient comes to grips with the fact that their time on earth is short, it changes their perspective, changes their priorities. It changes uh, even the possibility of further treatments. Logically, this is somewhat odd because you and I are never promised the next breath. Should we not always be living in that manner? And yet we have been lulled into sleep, as it were, recognizing that we probably going to live for 70 years, barring the, Christ, the Lord's return. We should take every breath in light of eternity. We as Christians are facing a very similar wake-up call as the cancer patient is this morning. Paul is going to remind us that we have not long remaining on this earth. And as such, we should breathe every breath as if it was the next one before eternity. So the idea that I want us to focus on is simple. It is short. The Christian's life is to be lived as if time is very limited or very short. That is Paul's simple explanation to us today. So Paul's simple statement, how do we live Christ-likeness in a secular world? Is live it as if the next breath will usher you into eternity. As we prepare for this passage this morning, let's ask the Lord's blessing on us, on his, on our time in His Word. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the privilege it is to bow our heads before you today. Lord, as we contemplate the brevity of the life that we have, I pray that we would recognize that every moment is precious in relationship to the way that we conduct ourselves with those outside this building, those that do not know you as Savior, those who are not part of this fellowship or part of any uh, believing fellowship, those that have rejected you. Lord, I pray that as they look at us, that they would see Christ in us, that we would take it a step further and recognize that we want to exemplify the Christian life before them. We know they look to us as hypocrites oftentimes. They mock and they ridicule our faith. But I pray that deep down they would begin to feel the Spirit's work in their heart and life, that they would come to know you as Savior. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for this message, but we recognize that it, as last week's, will be one that stomps on our toes a bit. And so I pray that you would give us the understanding of what your Word is saying, that we would be humble to it, that we would be submissive, and recognizing what we ought to do to change the way that we behave outside of this fellowship. And we just give you the glory and the honor for what you are accomplishing. I pray that you would give me the words to speak this morning, that they would, the words that are uttered would be true and faithful and accurate to your word, and that they would be powerful as of from the Holy Spirit. We give you the glory and the honor for all of these things. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Paul moves from... Lessons on the Christian's response to the government that we saw last week to now dealing with lessons on the Christian life in secular society. How are we to live Christian lives in a world that is anti-Christian, 
that does not want anything to do with Christianity and is continually trying to move us out and reject us back into the corner. Given our culture, I think that it is past due for us to understand the responsibility of the Christian in relationship to the world. So we seek to understand faith this morning, practice, lived out. And we're going to do this in a real-world situation. What does it look like in a real-world situation? What does it uh, feel like? What is the emotions attached to it? And as we do so, we're going to consider these aspects. The Christian life in secular society is based upon faith, and faith that is practiced, faith that is as preparation, and faith that is very practical. You see, if you somehow believe that faith is only practical for you on Sunday morning or on an occasional Sunday morning, this is wrong. We must understand that faith is absolutely practical and it is absolutely vital to our Christian growth and development. And so we are going to break these apart here as we begin this morning, but let's begin in verse 8 as we see faith as practice. Verse 8 of chapter 13 says this, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And so as we begin to understand this, we begin to recognize that faith must be lived out. If faith is to be a practice, it must be lived out. It cannot be just something you experience on Sunday morning and depart from for the rest of the week. Faith must be lived out. And right from the beginning, Paul establishes for us the playing field. What what are the boundaries? After having left the theology portion of the letter of Romans, Paul has told us how to respond in light of the same theology to God, to other believers, to ourselves, to the government, and finally now to our neighbors, secular and unbelieving, and then also those who are believing. How are we to respond to them? And the first word is, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. That is our playing field. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Now, dealing with the first part of that sentence, owing nothing, what does that mean? What is Paul saying? Is Paul saying that the believer ought never to have a mortgage or a car loan or any kind of or type of loan? Well, no, not really. We understand that from other places in Scripture that it is better to owe no man. Christ said it is better to owe no man, but there was no forbidden uh, action to that. There was no consequence for that. Here the word means no outstanding debt. Or we might take it a little bit further by saying to stay current with your payments and borrow only in rare occasions. So the first step of living Christ's likeness in the world around you is never put yourself in a position where you cannot reflect Christ to your neighbors, specifically in regards to your finances. If you are behind in your payments, if you are not keeping current with your payments, then you have the Christian obligation to get caught up, to live within your means, to live as God has supplied. But there is one debt that can never be repaid. And that is what Paul says next, verse 8. He says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Have no outstanding debt, borrow only on rare occasions, and keep current in your debt, except in loving one another. So what does he mean? What is our 
ongoing debt. If there is one that can never be repaid, what is our ongoing debt? Because this is faith and practice. Well, let's continue on reading verses 9 and 10 as well. For to this end, Christ died and lived... Oops, I did that yet last week too. Wrong chapter. Moving back. Oh, nothing to anyone except, verse 8, to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, if you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to, to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfillment of the law. So, as we begin to understand this ongoing debt, we recognize that Christ reveals in the context of Matthew chapter 19, that the law of Christ is to love God and to love, neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. And so Paul is taking that context and he is bridging it to you and I. As we finish out verse 18, we recognize that we are to fulfill this law. It is not the Old Testament law. Hopefully your Bibles have not capitalized law. It should not be capitalized. It is not the Old Testament law. This is the law given from Christ to believers. We are to practice this law, to love God and to love our neighbors as ourself. That is the fullness of the commandment that has been given to us. Given the extent of the work that has been done for you, while you are yet an enemy of the Lord in giving you salvation, how long do you suppose you should repay this debt of love? That's really what Paul is asking us. He's saying we should owe nothing financially. But let's move now into the practicality of faith being lived out. Faith being lived out is if you understand the cost of your salvation, you recognize that you will never finish paying off the debt of love. That is our law that we live by. Remember Christ's rebuke in the Sermon on the Mount. The people were living by the letter of the law. But Christ said, if you hate, you have committed murder already in your heart. What Christ was saying is not by the letter of law, but by the intention of the law. So it is not good enough for you to go out and practice love for your neighbor and say, I did it. I practiced love for my neighbor. They didn't like me, but I still practiced love for them. And therefore, I've satisfied the righteous demands of Christ. No, you have not. We are to love our neighbor. And this is an agape love. It is a love without end. And Christ's rebuke of the people on the Sermon of the Mount is that they were living according to the letter of the law, but they were not living according to the intention of the law. Considering verse 9 here in Romans and the quick jaunt through several of the Ten Commandments, what do you think love looks like? As I read through these, ask yourself that question. What do you think love looks like? Verse 9 says, For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does love look like? What is it? What is the practical practice of love? What is, what is the outflow? Considering verse 9, we must recognize that it is about heart motive as much as it is about outward response and actions. If we are to understand Christ's word in Matthew 19, 19, and we are also to understand Christ's word in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, and we understand what Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 9, we recognize that it is not good enough to avoid stealing your neighbor's possessions. It is not good enough to just not uh, physically commit adultery. It is not good enough to just... Uh, not covet your neighbor's possessions. 
It is about a heart motive as much as it is about an outward response and action. You see, your neighbor, when they see you show love, are they watching you show love in word, deed, and emotion, faith as well? Or are they just seeing it in deed? See, as a Christian, you can look like a Christian on the outside, but inwardly you have a problem. Paul is dealing with the issues of the heart. He has been dealing with the issues of the heart all along. You see, when you see your neighbor, do you show in word and deed true, genuine, agape love? Or are you secretly planning their demise? You know what I mean. You're like, I really hate that guy. But I'm going to smile. But I don't like him. I don't like him at all. He's a jerk. I don't like him. Are you secretly planning their demise? You see, maybe as carnal as it is, maybe you you lust after them. Or you lust after their possessions. They don't know it. But inwardly, that's going on. These are expressions of worldliness. And it is a struggle in the believer to not even think such things. Because no one sees the thoughts of the mind. Except the Lord. And so it is therefore much easier for you to practice Christianity without practicing true, genuine agape love. And Paul is calling us to true agape love. You are to practice love in the whole extent of the word, emotionally, physically, in the thought process, in the entire extent of the word. You see, you cannot hide these details from the Lord. You cannot lust after someone and not it be known by the Lord. And Paul moves on, he says in verse 10, This is the law to love. Biblical faith as being practiced will show love in word, deed, and motivation. Biblical love is not only spoken. It is not only seen in actions. It is also what is your motivation. What is causing you to do what you are doing. That is faith as practice. And that is not easy. Trust me, that is not easy. It is the recognition of the work that was accomplished in and for you by our great God. And it is an understanding that you will never fully discharge your debt to love your neighbor. Because you are a Christian. Not because you have that gift. Because I'm going to tell you, it is a struggle to love some people. It's a deep, intense struggle. You may lust after their possessions. You may desire after... uh, After what they have. You may desire it so bad that you're in your mind. Not quite willing to go steal it. But you want it desperately. And no one knows it. But you and the Lord. But that is not the law to love. That is not fulfilling of that law. Every motivation. Every intent. Ought to be to love your neighbor. To never seek their harm. But to always be looking for opportunities to share the love of Christ with them. You see, and we get this love confused. This is not the mushy, gushy kind of love. This is the hard-hitting, agape love of our great God, who would not leave us in sin, but gave us the incredible, merciful gift of salvation. See, maybe this is true in your neighborhood. But what about those who you are acquainted with through business? Maybe you can really love your neighbors because you only see them when they're going to work or when they're coming home. You don't really see them very much. They're not out very much. And maybe you even like them, and so you have no problem here. But what about those that you're acquainted through with business? 
Are you obedient to the world's ways and you're seeking to stick it to them at every opportunity? Or are you using every opportunity to advance the gospel message of Jesus Christ? Through the love of Christ. That's faith as practice. What about faith as preparation? Faith as preparation, verse 11, says this. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. This is a pretty bold statement. And we kind of miss it in black and white of the text of Scripture. But we see it come alive for us in just a moment. You see, faith as preparation is first, it is time to wake up. It is time to arise. Paul presents an interesting word picture all through these next several verses. And in a sense... He is sounding the alarm bells as if, and this is kind of, this is the best way I can explain it. Uh, In the morning, you look over at the clock, which did not go off. It was supposed to go off at 5 o'clock in the morning. You look over, it is now 6 o'clock. And you have an appointment at 6.30. What happens internally in your body? That is the emotion that Paul is striking right here. Your body goes into overdrive. Your mind is racing. Your thoughts are already five steps ahead. Your heart is pumping and dragging your body out of bed. Before you even know it, you're out of bed, you're clothed, you're on the road, and you don't even know how you got there. That is the emotion that Paul is trying to invoke in you and I. To sleep, that which Paul is referring to is the Christian's haphazard lack of sensitivity towards sin, especially, especially personal sin. As a believer, we have been lulled into this understanding that sin does not have as dire consequences as we've been told in Scripture. And so as we've been lulled into this, we fall asleep as Christians. And Paul wakes us up with a jolt and he says, enough is enough. It's time to wake up. It's time to recognize that the time is short. The time is short. And he adds verse 12 to this as well. He says, The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Quickly, Paul reminds us with a jolt that we should wake up from our sinful indulging, or or rather, sin-indulging stupor. He's reminding us that we should not be uh, lazy about our sin. We should not be lazy about our personal sin. The culmination of our salvation is at hand. We are closer every day, every hour, every minute to the return of Christ to meet us in the air. We are not guaranteed the next breath. The next component of Paul's illustration is the image of night and day. The darkness is almost over. In fact, Paul seems to indicate that the first rays of the morning are beginning to appear on the horizon. That's the way he's writing it. And if you've been up at that time of the morning, you recognize that the darkest time of the night is right before those first rays peer over the horizon. And things start to lighten up. Paul is saying, look out your window. Recognize that the first rays are starting to shine. The night is is coming to an end. So what does he mean by night? As he's referring to night, he is speaking of our earthly life, plagued as it is with spiritual darkness and danger. 
when the Lord Jesus calls to himself at the rapture, a new day will begin. Paul is saying the first rays are, are popping over. A new day is about to start, and that day is the rapture of Jesus Christ for his church. You are not guaranteed that those first rays won't come over that horizon instantaneously. The night is almost over. When I was a kid, one of the things my youth pastor asked is, what would you like to be caught doing when the Lord returned? Hmm, That's kind of an interesting question. I don't know, what would I like to be caught doing? And as as a teenager, I struggled with a whole series of things. As an adult, I struggle much less. I recognize what I want to be doing. I want to be in faithful service to the Lord and what He has called me to be doing when He comes and finds me. And that is what Paul is saying in this passage. Do not be fooled by the delay. This ride that we're on, it's about to come to a screeching stop. Are your spiritual affairs in order? One of the first things that a cancer patient will do when they've been diagnosed with terminal cancer is they will go make sure that their will is set the way they want it. Do you know why? They want to get their earthly possessions in order. As a Christian, we were just told that we are not guaranteed the next moment. So what are you going to do? Are you going to prepare your spiritual affairs to be ready? You see, faith is a preparation. Paul says this, not only is it time to wake up, the time is short, but he says it's time to get ready. It's time to get ready. Let's do that preparation. And I love what he says here at the end of verse 12. He says this, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So cut and dry, Paul is, in this statement. Especially considering that earlier he told us, I do what I do not want to do, but I do it anyway. And now he says, put off the deeds of the darkness and put on the armor of light. But there's a few phrases here that we need to address. Paul takes the opportunity to remind us that it is time to get ready. We are to take off the filthy garments of darkness. This is the deeds of our sinful stupor and be clothed in the battle garments of light. Did you catch that? He doesn't say put on the clothes of the day. He says put on the armor of light. Paul fully realizes that we are still engaged in a battle. We are still engaged in warfare. And the mere fact that the daylight is coming should not prevent us from putting on the protective armor that we need to survive in the darkness. We are still at war. And the deeds of the darkness ought to be put aside and the armor of light put on. Because we're going to need it. We don't know how long it will be until Christ returns. It could be in this very next moment. And then it may be another thousand years. We don't know. But we are to put on the armor of light. So Paul says faith is preparation. It is absurd for you as a Christian to not be prepared. As if you knew that uh, the tsunami was coming into shore. And everybody is fleeing in preparation. You're like, nope, I'm a Christian. I'm going to stand firm. No, that's ridiculous. You prepare. You get ready. Faith is preparation. Thirdly. Faith is practical. Faith is practical. And this, we're going to get back to our neighbors as well. 
Verse 13 says this, Let us behave properly, as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Verse 13, we start with this, proper behavior. It must never be a named among the Christian, the things that Paul has listed here. Paul has hit the nail on the head. The Christian ought to act properly. And the word literally means a fitting manner of behavior. Considering the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, is what you are doing at any given moment of the day fitting of that? When you consider the theology, the work that it took for you to come to know Christ as Savior, and for you to receive glorification, and you understand the weight of that, then how do you address the day-to-day issues of your heart? Maybe it's that uh, anger that leads at least into your mind to saying, you know what, I truly hate that guy. Let me ask you this, is that fitting? in light of the theology of the first 11 chapters? Is that fitting in light of the truth of what it took for your salvation? Because if it is not, that must be removed from you. Paul makes it very cut and dry, very black and white. The word means fitting manner of behavior. As a Christian, are you living a fitting life of behavior? Chapter In light of 11 chapters of theology, are you acting every moment in a fitting way as a Christian? This is a tremendous battle. But the evaluation is one that, you see, we recognize it, and this is the struggle we have as believers. We will give you the fact that as Christians we're going to fail, right? So what do we do? We evaluate ourselves based upon the other person. We say, yeah, that's bad and all, but you should see that Christian. I know what goes on in his life, and it's not pretty. So our evaluation becomes each other, and therefore we have this competition between each other. But that is not Paul's evaluation. Paul's evaluation is the first 11 chapters. The evaluation is not your neighbor. Paul is basing the evaluation on the work that has been done by the Lord in and through you as a Christian. He's not saying love your neighbor as is fitting of your neighbor. No, he's saying love your neighbor because that is what I demand of you. Because of the first 11 chapters. This doctrine is extremely practical when you realize the outgrowth of the work that has brought cataclysmic change in your life. When you recognize the cataclysmic altering that has taken place in your life because of Jesus Christ, because of the doctrine of the first 11 chapters, then you realize the weight of what was just stated. And then Paul, in helping us understand this, reveals the characteristics of darkness. And he gives us three main categories. And he takes that earlier quote from Christ that we recognize came out of Matthew 19, and also Matthew chapter 7. And he changes it slightly and considers it as actions instead of commands. He adds to it a little bit, but he considers motives more than the commands. Notice what he says. He says, let us behave properly as in the day. Not carousing and drunkenness, 
not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. That list follows very closely to what the commandments are from the Old Testament. But now he is reminding us of the actions, of the attitudes, of the heart desire. Proper behavior as a Christian is refined a bit by these three sets. It is not exhaustive. Don't say, well, I'm not participating in these things, so it's exhaustive. No, it's not exhaustive. This is just a summary of some of them. The first set is carousing and drunkenness. And this would be excessive partying and drinking. But especially with the intention of engaging without moral restraint. So you're engaged in drunkenness and carousing, excessive partying and drinking with no moral bearing whatsoever. Then the next one. First, in your mind, I don't want an answer out loud, in your mind, would you recognize that as wrong? Probably, most definitely. The second one, sexual promiscuity and sensuality. The two words speak to sexual immorality and, again, a complete lack of moral restraint. Now, this runs the entire gamut. This word is all-inclusive in all sexual immorality. Anything that perverts God's design is sexual immorality. With lack of moral restraint. There's no holding you back. We would agree that that is wrong. Probably no doubt in your mind you would say yes, that is wrong. But strife and jealousy. Isn't that an interesting addition to this list? Wouldn't you consider drunkenness and carousing and sexual promiscuity and sensuality in a whole different class as jealousy and strife? Paul doesn't. He puts them all together. You see, the Christian will practice jealousy and strife much more easily than they will practice sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Do you know why? Because it's hidden closer to the heart. It doesn't make you any moral person than the sexual promiscuous person. It's an issue of the heart. How often is jealousy present in our actions, in our thoughts, and in our motives? We're jealous of the way he or she looks. We're jealous of what they own. We're jealous of what God has given to them. We're jealous of uh, whatever it is. We're jealous. Maybe it's talents. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's possessions. Paul lumps those deeds of darkness together with drunkenness and sexual immorality. Does that change the way you consider jealousy? It ought to. To see how this works, notice the immediate assault on the conservative leader who commits sexual immorality. A pastor falls into sexual immorality, and you have an outcry of society against him, and rightly so. But what about the person in the pew who has jealousy in their heart towards someone across the aisle from them? Where's the outcry there? You see, we have in our minds established this list of severity. And sexual sin is is high on the list. Drunkenness is high on the list. But jealousy and strife aren't even on the list in our minds. And Paul puts them right there together. Consider that 
Consider that illustration I just gave you against the response to those causing strife and those who are jealous. And let's be honest, all are deeds of the darkness. None of them have a place in the heart and the life of the believer. Do you know how your neighbor will see the love of Christ in you? If you put aside jealousy and strife. If you put aside these emotions, these motivations that are causing, you don't realize that it's affecting your relationship with them, but they see no difference in you that they see from their ungodly friends because their ungodly friends are doing the same thing. They look good on the outside, but inside they're desperately wicked. You and I must be different. And this brings us to a very decisive action. Verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. This is decisive action. You want faith that is practical? Be decisive about it. There's no flirting with it. There's no two sides of the fence. There's one side of the fence. Paul brings the practice, the preparation, and to the practicality to one point. Put on Christ. Put on Christ. Stop living with one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. It does not work. Choose a side. Choose a side. And Paul says the side we must choose is to put on Christ. And do away with the things of the world. Choose with wisdom. Knowing that the day your salvation, that the day of your salvation will see its culmination maybe today. What do you want to be found doing when Christ comes back? Well, the truth is we don't know when he's coming back. There are several things I don't want him to see me doing. So I better be about the work of doing the things I want him to see me doing. Stop considering the deeds of the flesh as indulgences in which you can participate. Paul words this last phrase very, very carefully. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. This word for no provision means no foothold of any kind. No place where sin can grab on. The indulgences of the flesh can hang on. And this is what happens when you say, you know what, it's not really that bad. Um, I, I've got this thought running through my mind. I'm going to play it out a little bit. I'm not going to prevent it. I'm going to allow it to continue to go. Because I know that I would like the outcome of that if I could do that physically. But I know I can't. So I'm going to let this play out. You've just allowed a provision. For the indulgences of the flesh. Or maybe you say, I could participate in it this time. Because it's not really that much harm in it this time. You've just allowed a provision for the sinful indulgences of the flesh. Paul says, put on Christ. Remove those footholds. Stop considering the deeds of the flesh as indulgences that you can participate in. Especially considering the way that it affects your attitudes and your actions in regards to your neighbors. As that is the context of which we build upon. In light of this, I want to show you what this looks like. Turn to Acts chapter 19. We're going to end here in Acts. Acts chapter 19. What does this look like? How is this practiced? Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 18. And we don't have time for all of the details of the of all of the context here. You'll get some of it, but spend some time looking at this later this afternoon. 
beginning in verse 18 of chapter 19, says, Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. These are magicians. They've been practicing magic. Verse 19 says, And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up to the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. You see here, the gospel message was going in. It was making tremendous inroads. And those who had been previously practicing magic put away the fleshly indulgences. They put away at tremendous cost to themselves of all of these things that had everything to do with their life before Christ. They put it all away. They went and they burned them as a public statement to everyone. We put these things away. They are worthless. And we have found something better. This is what it looks like to put on Christ. For these believers who were formerly magicians, the cost was an equivalent to 138 years worth of a salary for a rural worker. A tremendous cost. A personal cost to them. But they put off the fleshly things of indulgences. And they made a bold statement in their community saying, we will not practice these again. That is decisive action. And that brings us to this reality. We must stop making excuses. We must stop participating in the indulging and indulging in the fleshly desires of this world. Notice what happens in verse 20 of Acts chapter 19. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. I want to ask you a question. And this is beyond us in this room. Is the word of the Lord growing and prevailing in our culture? Most of us would say absolutely not. My question is, whose fault is that? You and I as believers must stop making excuses. We must stop putting on the fleshly indulgences when we should be putting on Christ. We should be revealing to our neighbors what it looks like to practice faithful Christianity. Stop making excuses. Stop living in two worlds. And when we do, I cannot guarantee it as it is not promised to us. But by the very character of God, we recognize that most likely what would happen would be the word of the Lord would grow mightily and prevail in our country and in our community if they saw you stop making excuses. If they saw you putting aside the fleshly indulgences of the world and putting on Christ, and not only in your deeds and your words, but in your motivations. The most common accusation against Christians is that we are hypocrites. Right? Some of that is warranted. Some of that is unwarranted. It's not all fair. Uh, We're not asking. We can't assume it's going to be fair because it's not. Yet the process of transformed living, you and I will become less and less like the hypocrite and more and more like Christ. Put into practice the first 11 chapters of theology. And notice what it does in your life. It moves you from one who has got one foot in the world and one foot in godliness. Practicing, riding this fence. We better be careful because that fence is electrified. 
And we have to be brutally careful in recognizing we must choose one side or the other. And if we choose the other, we will be like the world. If we choose the right one, we will be like Christ, growing more and more and more like him. The key, though, is love, agape love. Agape love for your neighbors. The world should experience Christian love in you and not by the world's definition. Do not let the world define your love. Do not let the world say, well, Christians should be taking care of this or Christians should be doing this. That is not Christian agape love. Agape love is spelled out in the Word of God. Agape love is spelled out in the first 11 chapters of the book of Revelation and that, or of Romans, and that should be our practice. The only way for you to allow the world around you to experience Christian love, the only way that is possible is if you understand that the thoughts, the intentions of your heart, in one way or another, affect the way you conduct yourself. You say, but no one sees. No one sees that hatred that you have towards your neighbor. No, but you know how you respond to them differently than you respond to someone you like, right? They know it. They may not be able to put their finger on it, but they know that you're treating them differently, that you're not treating them in true agape Christian love. They know that the thoughts and the intentions of your heart in one way or another are affecting your conduct to them. And this must always be done in recognition that we are living in extremely short time. We have no idea. The next breath may be our last. This breath may be our last. The time is short. It will only happen where you can demonstrate agape love to your neighbors if you take off the fleshly indulgences of this world and put on Christ and participate in the deeds of the day, not in the deeds of the night. As we move into this Christmas season, I can think of no greater responsibility that the Christian must do. You are uh, being thrust into opportunities where you are seeing, talking to, and meeting your neighbors. This year, unlike many other years, usually it's 30 degrees outside. Yesterday we were working in the churchyard, and it was 70 degrees. People were walking by and driving by all day long. You have contacts with them. Let them see Christ in you. And make sure you are faithfully practicing the deeds of the day. Let's close in word of prayer. Father, we do love you and we thank you for your word. It is challenging to our hearts because we recognize that the deeds of darkness are so easy to indulge in. We believe that because it is the deeds of darkness that they are hidden from sight from everybody. But the reality is we know that they are completely revealed to you. We also know that it is completely revealed to ourselves, and that causes a different, a distinct action towards those that we despise to those that we truly love. I pray that you would teach us to love our neighbor. Teach us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Help us to be obedient to your word. Help us to be obedient in the way that we respond to our neighbors, to each other as Christians. Lord, we don't want to be those who are reasons for the word of God to not prevail in our society. We know that your word is living and active, that it will accomplish its goal. 
But we pray that in our community, your word would prevail. It would grow. And it would do so because of the lifestyle of authentic Christianity lived out in the lives of every single one of us of this fellowship. Lord, I pray that your name would be glorified in our lives, that it would be lived out in our words, our deeds, and our motivations, and that as such, your name would be exalted in this community as well. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time of year. We thank you for your Son sent to us when we were yet enemies to be crucified at our hands because of our sin and to rise again to allow us to be victorious over sin and death. Lord, we cannot imagine a broader spectrum of love. We can't even begin to fathom the spectrum of this love. And as such, we recognize that we must fall down and worship. And we give you the worship and the praise now. In your son's name we pray. Amen.